Welcome to Is Higher Education Preparing Us for an Uncertain Future? Thank you for joining this conversation. I'm Rob Germain, General Manager and Chief Employee Owner at Czech Media. Czech is pleased to present this important discussion, which is part of the third annual Rising Economy Conference, an immersive virtual and in-person event by this, hosted by the South Island Prosperity Partnership. This is just one of more than 20 sessions helping us cut through the noise and find clarity about the future of where we live and work. I'd like to introduce our moderator, Nathan Nankivel, the Executive Lead of Digital Research Infrastructure at Research Universities Council of BC. Prior to that, Nathan spent more than two decades with the provincial and federal governments. This included roles in venture capital, innovation policy and strategy, Asia-Pacific policy, and environment. Nathan's current focus is on high-performance computing strategy and helping connect users with BC research expertise. Nathan, over to you. Thanks very much, Rob. So, uh, as a start, the post-secondary sector plays an enormously important role in BC. It's the primary source of talent creation to meet near-term and future labor market demand. It's the source of many of BC's top technology and innovation companies. The sector is also an economic engine in dozens of communities, creating significant direct and induced employment. It also contributes to the public good through applied research and developing new knowledge that allows us to better understand the world around us. And post-secondary institutions provide a neutral and safe space for emerging dialogue. As Victoria, BC, and Canada move into an increasingly uncertain future, the post-secondary sector is poised to play an even more prominent role. The latest labor market projections in BC estimate that more than 40% of jobs over the next 10 years will require a degree, and more than 80% will require some form of post-secondary education. Demand in the job market for competencies like problem solving and communication, which are honed through post-secondary education, is growing. At the same time, many jobs require increasingly specialized skills offered by post-secondary institutions. We also know universities and colleges have a critical role to play in the economy. BC's resource economy, which helps fund an array of programs, will need more and more innovation from the post-secondary sector to ensure its long-term competitiveness and environmental sustainability. The expertise of BC's post-secondary sector will also be critical in solving the major challenges of our times, including affordability in housing, mental health, the opioid crisis, and climate change. So as we move into this uncertain future, it's important that we continue to look for more ways to grow further connections between industry, government, civil society, and the post-secondary sector. So we're aligning the outputs of the sector with society's priorities. With this in mind, we're lucky enough to have the leaders of Victoria's three major post-secondary institutions present. Over the remaining hour, we'll focus on a few trends and ask each of our panelists questions that we hope will stimulate discussion and, as importantly, a range of critical follow-on conversations. Joining me today is Dr. Lane Trotter, president of Camosun College. Dr. Trotter became president of Camosun College in January 2022. Previous to this, he was president and CEO at Langara College in Vancouver, where he oversaw the development of the college's two academic plans, two strategic plans, and a multi-year integrated priorities plan. Also joining us is Kevin Hall, the president and vice chancellor of UVic. Kevin is an innovative academic leader who previously served at three world-class universities, including the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia, where he served as Vice President and Senior Deputy Vice Chancellor of Global Engagement and Partnerships. Finally, we have Dr. Philip Steenkamp, President and Vice Chancellor of Royal Roads University. Philip is a galvanizing leader with broad experience in the public service and post-secondary sectors. Before his appointment to Royal Roads University, he held the roles of Vice President, External Relations at the University of British Columbia and Simon Fraser University. Thank you all for participating in this panel. We'll begin with a sample question to sort of set the frame. First, could each of you please describe the role of the post-secondary, how you see the role of post-secondary institutions in society and how it's evolved over time? People will start with Lane to begin with. Thank you very much and happy to be here to talk uh, to SIP about the future. So first, uh, post-secondary education is provide opportunities for people to pursue a better future, uh, to make sure that we support the community through the development of the right type of education and training, to support the labor market, to support people's uh, economic development in terms of their own uh, goals and aspirations, and regional economic development. And 
I can say uh, from Camosun's perspective, we're very lucky to work with uh, two great universities who are committed to transfer and opening opportunities that blend this all together. Perfect. Kevin, same question. How would you describe the role of post-secondary institutions in society, and how have you seen them involved in your time? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge I'm joining you today from uh, the territory of the uh, Songhees and the Squamal people. I'm at uh, home in Oak Bay. Um, look, I think, uh, you know, universities are about educating. That was their core mission uh, years and years ago about building the talent pool for uh, for the workforce, for the government. Um, but I think, you know, universities have evolved in the fact that they're not so self-centered anymore. They're much more community minded. We need to be uh, always having community at the top of our mind in the decisions we make, the programs we offer, the types of research we do, the way we interact with the community to solve social, environmental, economic problems. I think we also, at the same time, need to be globally relevant, as, as we've seen over the last two to three years. These have been really disruptive times, everything from the pandemic to geopolitical issues to uh, looks like some huge economic issues coming. And universities should have a central role in, in propping up and supporting the community. And so we've got to have true partnerships with, with the stakeholders that are around us, with uh, with our governments, with our industry and business, and with the citizens in the community. We want the, the citizens in this community and the Capital Region District to, to truly believe that these three institutions are their institutions. Thanks, Kevin. And, Philip, over to you. Yeah, thank you. I just will add um... – to my colleagues' comments, they've, they've, they've really covered the ground quite nicely here. Um, but also to say that I'm joining you from the lands of the Kasafs and Lekwungen ancestors and families uh, here. And uh, all three institutions are, are deeply committed to our partnerships with, uh, with Indigenous communities. And as Lane pointed out, we have a unique ecosystem here on Southern Vancouver Island. We've got three very different institutions, so we work in a very complementary way uh, together, but with very distinct and different mandates. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I won't, uh, I won't repeat what my colleagues have said, but maybe just focus on, uh, the rapid evolution we've seen recently in, in post-secondaries, which, uh, which Kevin mentioned. The world is changing at such an incredible rate right now that, um, post-secondary institutions really have to respond. We are, I think, much more nimble and responsive than we used to be. You know, the typical thing is you would build a university up on a mountain away from a city, create an ivory tower, sort of away from the distractions of real life. And as Kevin and Lane have pointed out, you know, that is not the role of post-secondary institutions. It never should have been the role, but it's certainly not the role now. We are deeply embedded in community. We are focused on the needs of the labor market, on the education needs, of course, of, of students and um, dealing with the, the key challenges that are in front of us right now, you know, things like uh, climate change, the economic disruption, uh, technological, rapid technological change, um, you know, huge social and, and political churn. Uh, you know, it really is our, our moment to demonstrate our relevance right now. And I believe with these three institutions and the unique e ecosystem we have here that um, we are up to that particular challenge. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Next question I'd like to ask you is let's talk about what students are facing in this era of polycrises and rapid change. People say students today will change careers 50 times. How can higher education keep up with the pace of change and prepare students for an uncertain future? Uh, Kevin, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. I, I think, first of all, we, we have to recognize that a university or a college's role has changed over the years. We're simply not filling a vessel with knowledge, right? We're just not loading, downloading information into a student's head. That's the only way they're going to be adaptive. It's about really learning. It's about learning to be adaptable. It's about being curious. Um, critical thinking. These are all the skills that should be really imparted on, on one's journey through a university. I think the other piece is we've often focused on what do we do? For the three or four years, we have students in our system at a university. But in fact, you know, students go out and have careers. There's always going to be a need for upskilling and reskilling. There's going to be a need to continue to build your career as a student. And so we have to make learning available through the whole life cycle journey of a student as they, as they go from high school into their first job, as they move on in their careers. And I think we've been absent in the second piece of that. So I think that's really important. I think the third piece that, that 
to be adaptable again and, and to tie into this uh, lifelong learning is the concept of micro-credentials. And I know we're going to talk about that a little later on. You know, but what's the university or the college's role in the reskilling and upskilling that needs to happen in the workforce for, you know, job progression? But equally as important for employers, it's the retention piece is important. And, and you know, research has shown that retention of employees uh, depends on how much you actually time you spend and effort you spend on, on bringing your employees along on a journey with you. Perfect. Thank you. And, and Lane, over to you. I, I think that uh, what uh, Kevin said is absolutely correct. The other item that we have is how we support communities. So, for example, uh, all of us, and I know uh, specifically Kamosin, we work in areas of supporting Indigenous communities, first generation, new Canadians, landed immigrants. And in these roles, our job is to try and provide opportunities for people to get into a post-secondary education and to make sure that we're also delivering the skills into community. If we take a look at where Camosun is located at our two campuses on Lansdowne and Interurban, we're on the traditional uh, territories of Lokongwin and Wasanic peoples. And so we work with both communities. We have 1,400 Indigenous students. And again, it's how do we deliver programming that meets the needs of those communities? How do we make sure that we bring in first-gen learners, so first-generation learners, uh, to give them that opportunity if they've never had the chance before or their families to pursue a post-secondary education, whether that's a certificate, a diploma, trades, apprenticeship, university transfer towards that degree. And all of those things are what we're doing by making sure we have transfer in place between our institutions. Articulation is one of the means we do that, but also developing joint programs. For example, with the, uh, the University of Victoria, we offer a joint nursing program. With Royal Roads, we work very closely with our horticulture program. And so, again, providing these practical opportunities uh, for, our, for our learners to gain the skills to get out, get that first job. But again, through continuing studies and other means, making sure that they can come back. And again, I don't want to reiterate what, uh, what Kevin just said, but micro-credentials are going to be an important part of that future as well. Perfect. Thank you. So, so you both touched on micro-credentials. Maybe we should jump right into that question. So increasingly, we're seeing governments focus on micro-credentials. This is an important tool for broadening the skill sets of existing workers and enabling university graduates to add new areas of specialization. How do each of you see micro-credentials fitting into your institution's future planning? Where do you think micro-credentials will have the potential to afford students, workers, and learners the most value? Philip, do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a great question. And I think you'll hear from all of us that we are deeply committed to looking at micro-credentials. We used to call these things short courses, uh, <laughs> now calling them micro-credentials, and that's fine. Um, I think the key here is to develop programs in conjunction with industry that really meet industry needs. I mean, if we just go off and develop these on our own, they might not necessarily be relevant, might not be meeting that particular need. But they have to be done within the context of the general post-secondary education as well. Um, you know, Kevin and Lane have both mentioned, the, you know, the importance and the value of post-secondary education in providing the particular skills that people need. And those might be particular technical skills, but also skills, um, and I think you mentioned this, Kevin, skills around things like critical thinking, problem solving, working in teams, collaboration, all of those we are hearing from industry are critically important. So from Royal Road's perspective, um, you know, we are looking at micro-credentials in a whole number of areas. Um, we've got a micro-credential in climate action. We've got micro-credentials in project management. Uh, we've got micro-credentials in digital transformation. We have also worked as three institutions collectively and collaboratively on developing proposals for funding for micro-credentials. So we are doing this in concert. Um, but working closely with industry and, and community groups to make sure that, that these are relevant. So I think they are a big part of the future, but they are only a part of the future as well. I don't see us, uh, you know, I see them as complementing our other offerings uh, as well. I do think a little caution here, too. I do think we need a framework on micro-credentials. We need a common understanding of what they are. Uh, and we need to make sure, as Lane has said, that the, 
you know, that there's good articulation here and there's good kind of uh, credit recognition. So people who get a micro-credential in one place will have that recognized in another, and it will build, it will ladder it to another credential um, over time. Um, and I am a little concerned about sometimes some things we call micro-credential, which, which honestly should just be training that you get in the workplace. Uh, so we have to figure out, you know, in concert with all the stakeholders out there, what our role is in this space. Thank you so much. And, and Lane, maybe over to you, and then we'll, Kevin, offer this to you as well before moving on. Well, building on that issue of micro-credentials, we have uh, a number of them. Uh, some are in the area of indigenization and trying to make sure that we're, again, responding to community needs. We have more planned, uh, and these are courses that, and I like what was said, these are short courses that you link a number together, they get you a credential that gets you employed. And you can pick up and keep your credentials, if you will, your bucket of skills or your tool belt of skills being added to uh, along the way. And if we plan this for the future, and I really like what, what Philip has said, we can start perhaps putting this into another framework where with enough of these, perhaps it can result in a certificate, a diploma, so that uh, employers have a chance to see that these add together to make sure that um, they have an individual with the skill sets that will keep them employed or provide them, uh, our students, with opportunities to seek new, emplo- and new employment and more opportunities. And in the end, while we do all of these things for community, we exist for our students. Kevin? I think uh, for me, Nathan, you know, if I think back 20 years, we were talking about big things called MOOCs, the massive online courses, uh, which have become micro-credentials because the online providers have chunked them down into little components. And, you know, Coursera has been around 20 years. It's hard to believe, but they've been around 20 years. The promise there was learning on any device in any location at any time. And, in fact, I just recently took a, a UBC business course on Coursera for $199. Um, and I got to do it at my own pace. And it's a cool way to learn. And I think, you know, they've been around and they do have a big place. For me, it's about looking at different modalities. So the for credit types of micro-credentials, I think which particularly the Ministry of Advanced Education here is interested in, are quite different and have much more rigor to them, perhaps, because you want to count them and stack them up, have these stackable small courses that add into one course. There's a huge future there for those. And I think, as Philip said, we need a framework around that. Why can't we get a framework? The EU has a framework for all 29 countries in the EU. It's a micro-credential framework. The government of New Zealand built a, built a framework three years ago for micro-credentials. So it can be done. We just need to have the will as a sector and, and, and the will as a government. We're also at UVic really interested in the not-for-credit micro-credentials. And, and these are things that, again, can be used for lifelong learning. They can be used for business and industry. They can be used for our retired alumni who want to learn something. And so we're really trying to look at how we build uh, these micro-credentials that are not for credit, but they're of some use to some organization. We're currently delivering a micro-credential for Canadian border security, which looks at artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, two of the biggest technologies that are invading the world of everybody that works at CBSA. And and they were saying, you know, what we just need is some of our employees to have a little working knowledge of artificial intelligence. And so I think universities have a have a huge role to play in upskilling and reskilling people that are already in the existing businesses and industry and government departments. Um, I think the other beauty about micro-credentials for me is, you know, let's loosen up what we call a definition of a learning experience. It doesn't have to be in a, in a lab. It doesn't have to be in a lecture hall. A learning experience out in the job or, or, or out somewhere in the world uh, could count, you know, towards a, a piece of a micro-credential that, again, you can stack to get your experience. I think it allows us to expand what we think of as, as, as education and the development of those critical thinking skills. Thank you. Those are great answers. Um, I'd like to, to turn the corner a little bit and talk a little bit about something that's near and dear to most students' hearts. So uh, we know that current labor market demand, rising inflation, and just generally increasing costs might encourage more students to shift to jobs earlier rather than pursuing longer postgraduate degrees. So while meeting the immediate uh, labor market demand is critical for driving the economy forward, how do we also encourage that sort of longer-term development of students for those very high-tech, high-skilled jobs that we're going to need uh, in the intangible economy as we move forward? 
So maybe we could we could start with you, Lane, on this one, if that's OK. Absolutely. And, and again, that's that's a great question. And this is something I've seen throughout my career is that balance between uh, students getting hired for a job. And then when we go on to the downside of the economic curve, those same individuals being laid off because they didn't have the credential. And so that balancing act is how do we give the learner, the student, the credentials to get the job on the one hand? And on the other hand, how do we make sure that they can have the credentials so that when we're on the downside of the economic curve, they keep the job? And that's because they have a more fulsome set of skills, a training and education. And that's a balancing act that micro-credentials will help. Working with stackable credentials will help. Um, and then providing opportunities for people who, um, and I remember uh, when I was working full-time and, uh, and doing my doctorate part-time, is creating these opportunities to, to pursue further studies while, while, while working. Because the number of people that when the economic curve is on the downside who come back to post-secondary, and then they've been past a certain point of time, and the education that they had seven, eight, nine, ten years ago is no longer current to what we're um, uh, training and educating today. So we have to find a blend in that um, to make sure that those learners are able to keep that job, are able to, if that job goes away, find the other job that they need to support themselves, support their, their families, but also support uh, uh, our community and keep our uh, industry competitive. Thanks, Lane. And, and Philip, how, how's Royal Roads considering this question? Well, you know, Royal Roads was set up 27 years, years ago with a very specific mandate, a, a unique mandate in, in Canadian post-secondary, and that was to focus exclusively on professional and applied programs and meeting the demands of the labor market. So we've essentially had to confront that from the get-go. And I think the answer to, to the question here is, you just have to stay really current and relevant um, and take advice, um, you know, from industry groups, from business groups, from community groups about, you know, what the labor market's looking like and where it's heading. And if you can stay ahead in your programming, so your programming isn't stale, you can stay ahead and try and anticipate where things are going. That is part of the answer. Um, but, you know, what you are really talking about is a market test of the relevance of our programming over time. And the opportunity cost of going to university or college as opposed to going into the labor market. Um, and we just have to, I think, make the case for the value of the education we offer. If we can't make the case, then people will vote with their feet. Um, and often, as Lane's pointed out, to their detriment when there's a downturn in the economy. But you have seen in some um, advanced jurisdictions or developed jurisdictions like the UK, where the opportunity cost of a particular kind of education now seems higher than going into the labor market and people are questioning the value of degrees. And, you know, I think that's a really important discussion for us to have and to think constantly about the relevance of our programming um, and how nimble and responsive we are. Again, I, I say that, you know, railroads was set up in a very particular way, so we would be able to be very nimble and responsive and be able to to meet the changing needs of the labor market very quickly or respond to the changing needs of the labor market very quickly. But even so, there is in institutions like ours, this bureaucracy and process, which sometimes slows you down. Um, and we just have to be, um, you know, very, uh, I think, very attentive to that. And we have to work really, really closely with our partners out there in the business community, in industry, uh, in the in the community sectors generally um, to understand where things are heading. Uh, so it, it's an interesting question. I don't quite know quite know the answer to it. One one last little plug I would make too, because your your question did mention graduate programs too, and that's the need for us in BC to to fund graduate programs. We don't fund graduate students uh, at nearly near the rate that some other jurisdictions do. In Canada, and so the supports aren't necessarily there for some of these more advanced areas. And I'm sure this is something Kevin would like to touch on too. 
you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, Kevin, uh, I was wondering <laughs> yeah. if you could, if you could sort of comment on that incentivization piece a little bit. Yeah, there. well, let, let me sort of get to it in a circuitous way, and I just wanted to start off by saying I actually think Canadian higher education institutions are amongst the most conservative in the world. We should be embracing students that come in and out of our system. Students that come in and out of the workforce that change careers. This should be actually seen as a good thing to do. This gets back to this lifelong learning, right? Who says that degree should be three or four years? Why not take seven or eight years and work in between? Who says that we should cater to high school leavers in this country? At UVic, we're 91% students that are out of high school within three years. Where I worked previously in Australia, 60% of the students at my university, which had 50,000 students, were mature students defined as being out of high school more than three years. Some of them hadn't even finished high school. They created pathway programs to bring people back into university at a time when they needed the knowledge to improve their career. So somebody was going from being have a technical position to an engineering position. They create a pathway to come through and, and to have that happen. Who says we shouldn't count work experience? I think this is a big um, issue we have with our higher education system. If somebody's out there working in a specific role, using their knowledge to, to drive an outcome, how do we evaluate that and say that should actually count towards some of your degree? And I think uh, really when we look at all of these, we need to say let's challenge the convention and let's embrace the fact that people in society, particularly as we move forward in society, will have multiple jobs, will have opportunities to come in and out of school, and let's think beyond the conventional, let's go to school when I get out of grade 12 and I'm going to be there for four years and graduate with my degree and I'm going to do that forever and ever because that's actually not the reality of the world today. So we need to be, we need to have that adaptability. Thank you. So uh, again, turning to a little bit of a different topic, I think during COVID we saw, at least when I was in government, we saw increased uh, interaction between government, the post-secondary sector in the industry in a way that was rapid, it was nimble, it, it was very innovative relative to, to what we'd seen. Uh, this is, I think, maybe a trend in many other countries where you see much more integration and formal linkages between the post-secondary sector, governments, industry, and civil society. And as a result, you see much more coordination on the labor market and innovation, and also sort of focusing the applied research side on, on the priorities. In BC, I one could argue maybe we have a bit more to, to go on that front, but I was just wondering if each of you could sort of comment on what you, do you see the role for universities and colleges in catalyzing these partnerships? How do you see these partnerships kind of working? And, and do you see any sort of really good examples that you think are, are worth highlighting for our audience today? So maybe uh, I could start with you again, Kevin, if that's okay, and we'll work backwards. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nathan. And it's a, it's a great question that puzzles many of us who have been in academia in Canada a long time. And, I think uh, universities are very willing partners in, in driving what might be called a knowledge-based economy. But I think it falls on deaf ears a lot of the times. I was a young academic in the 1980s when Canada came up with its new innovation program. It was going to embrace innovation, the transfer of technology from universities into industry and business. Um, Ten years later, there was a second innovation plan. Ten years later, another one, another one. And finally, we had one last year with the Liberals. And, and I think it's all too easy in a country like Canada to rely on um digging stuff out of the ground and cutting down trees. This is the Canadian economy, right? As much as it was when I went to Australia, whereas you see other countries in the world embracing this knowledge-based economy, countries like Sweden, which are now 50% of their GDP is knowledge-based, while we're sitting back at 6.5% in Canada. And until we get that recognition, I think, from, from government and industry, that we're going to move in another direction um, you know, with our economy, then we're not going to have the uptake and the embracing of, of knowledge that gets developed at to universities and colleges and other places that, that can continue to do research. We don't have the right environment to uh, to continue that. And so, you know, are there good examples? Yeah, there's some good examples. I mean, the government has created some programs, uh, Triumph, for example, in, uh, in Vancouver, which is Canada's leading uh, nuclear accelerator facility, has for years developed technology which has spinoffs going out into industry and business. And so one of the first, you know, particle collider collectors to collect atom, uh, atoms knocking together became what we now know as an MRI, right? which has a huge impact on, on the medical industry, on, on health outcomes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there are specific areas in Canada where we've done not too bad. Health is, is one of them where we've embraced some of the new technologies to try to become leaders in health. But I am concerned that we don't have all the pieces in place to continue to be leaders in health. And I don't think we'll do that until um, either in this province, 
the government embraces a new knowledge-based economy for the future, or in this Canada, we, in Canada, we really put some some effort behind that. Thanks, Kevin, and, and maybe Lane, same question over to you. Uh, thanks, and uh, I think that challenge that we have um, post-secondary in Canada, we're pretty good at partnerships within our communities, uh, with business, industry, community organization, NGOs, government. The challenge is sometimes the coordination of that. One of the things that we're working on, and it'll be built into our next version of our strategic plan that'll be rolled out in January, is how are we, uh, how we're going to define education. And that's going to be based on three key components, which is the great education uh, and training that we offer, work integrated learning, and the other piece that ties into your question directly is around providing every single student uh, some kind of applied research or innovation opportunity. Now, that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to take us five to ten years to make sure that we can provide that. And how do we do that? We need to work with government. We need to work with, with industry and the community to define not only uh, programs and projects that are, are in the hard sciences or in the technology field, but in, in health sciences, uh, dealing with uh, social sciences. And by doing that, we can start addressing some of the immediate needs that we have. So this is one way of looking at this is defining innovation and knowledge versus innovation and practice. For a college, our area of focus is innovation and practice, taking existing knowledge and applying it better. Our colleagues on the university side, my two colleagues here, they're involved in the area of that innovation and knowledge, pushing the bounds of new knowledge. And then how do we capture that? to keep our economy competitive, to make our um, community a better place, to make sure that we have those MRIs and other technologies coming forward. So we need to be able to work on adapting that. But there are costs around that that uh, sometimes people say, well, that's the government's responsibility or that's somebody else's responsibility. And it's our community's responsibility to make sure that we provide those opportunities. The challenge for us attracting students and the challenge for industry in terms of getting individuals right now in Vancouver, in Victoria, in Kelowna, is the cost of living. And that is going to have a longer-term impact that we need to be mindful of as we're trying to develop these strategies. So if we have all the money in the world but nobody can afford to live here, then we're still in the same position. So we need to deal with this as a multifaceted strategy to make sure that we can attract people who can actually afford to live here, who can raise a family here, to make sure that they are pursuing the things that we need. And again, we're working on our parts of it, that innovation and practice. And in fact, we have one of the top 50 applied research colleges in the country. And I'm always leery about using the term applied research because we don't do what uh, UVic and Royal Roads do. We do innovation in practice because that's our domain. We're, we're looking at a six month window. How can we help the business? How can we make sure that we're there? And we tie in with our partners at, at UVic and Royal Roads in that periodically, and they help us uh, and we help them. So again, it's how do we work on this together? Uh, and I think as we try to deal with this, it's not just one prong. There are multiple uh, issues that we need to deal with at the same time. That's great. Thank you, Lane. And, and Philip, same question for you. Well, my colleagues have covered this, I think, <laughs> pretty comprehensively. So maybe, maybe just a one comment, I think on the teaching side, there actually are really good linkages between universities, government, industry, and civil society. We all are deeply committed to work integrated learning. UVic has one of the best and biggest co-op programs in the country, if not the best and the biggest. And um, Lane, uh, of course, you know, spoke about their, their deep, uh, deep connections. But to Kevin's point, uh, the formal linkages sort of on the innovation research side are really underdeveloped. Um, and it does, it is because, you know, the, the reason Kevin has mentioned, just the reliance we've had on sort of resource extraction. Um, and we do really need to, uh, we really need to start making the argument, as Kevin has said, for the importance of developing a strong knowledge economy here. Uh, we really do. Um, and one little local example maybe is the three of us are collaborating on a new uh, project, a new campus on the West Shore, where we're going to jointly offer our programming to two students there. And students are broadly defined, including students leaving high school, but also 
adult learners and people coming back to get skilled and, and reskilled. And we hope as part of that, too, we can work really closely with local industries, civil society, and the local governments to start a discussion there about the future of the economy on the West Shore, as an example. You know, the economy on the West Shore right now has, uh, really relies on construction, big big box retail, and a few other things. And, and it's going to have to evolve, and it's going to have to change. And so the three of us are collectively committed to being part of that solution and kind of catalyzing that solution in a local way. But as Kevin pointed out, there's some good examples across the country, but there's nothing systemic. It's not part of our culture here as, as it is in, in some of the Nordic countries and it is as it is in Germany. So I think it is a big challenge that we need to continue to work on. Thank you. And maybe if I, I can, Philip, I'd, I'd like to sort of give you a little bit of a follow up just because of the overlap and answers. But uh, I think we've all seen or we would probably largely agree that investments in, in research and R&D more generally are kind of declining, whether all across sort of society on a various levels. And so one of the things I wanted to sort of pick your brains about is it seems to me standing on the outside, it's often hard to tell that story about how you start with a piece of research that leads to a new innovation and then how it makes its way along the continuum to, to resulting in public good or, or a company. And I think when you think about that long-term spectrum of how society has to see that, how do we as sort of a sector tell that story more effectively so that people see that this early investment leads to, to these amazing public outcomes later on? And maybe we could start with you, Philip, on that one, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. And I, I know my colleagues will have great examples here. So I'll, I'll just take one uh, one angle here, and that's around communication. So um, I, I uh, chair a, uh, an organization called, called the Conversation Canada, which is an academic journalism association. It actually started in Australia, and their chapters now around the world. But the the intention of this is to connect our academics and our researchers with journalists, and the journalists help translate that academic language into sort of publicly accessible language to talk about the amazing research, the amazing things that are happening in our institutions, uh, and to communicate those broadly. Um, and this is now the biggest academic journalism society in the world. I mean, the Canadian chapter alone had 33 million impressions uh, last year. So there's a big piece around around knowledge mobilization and communication and demonstrating the kind of value of what we do, but also translating it into a way that, that the public understands. Um, so that, that's just on, on, on the communication piece. And I'm, I'm sure my colleagues will, will have uh, other comments and other examples, um, that, that answer your question in a different way. That's great. Thank you. And, and so Lane, you had mentioned earlier that that idea of sort of a six month window um, can you maybe sort of, it seems a little bit shorter, obviously, for you, but do you still sort of see that same uh, challenge about tying that thread between the initial investment and what the longer term outcomes are? Well, again, if we're looking at existing uh, knowledge, so again, this innovation in practice, the timeline can be six months to a year because the knowledge is already there. It's then bringing um, an industry, and sometimes these are in areas of community practice as well, bringing them into uh, Tomosin Innovates, um, seeking support from federal government, provincial government, industry, uh, NGOs in some cases, and then bringing in uh, our faculty, our students, to help solve a problem uh, that will help that company um, jumpstart to create a business uh, that will employ people, to uh, do a proof of concept about how can something be done, do small-scale uh, prototyping or production runs to show that something's possible, look at ways of improving existing ways of doing manufacture. Um, other areas that we've done is, is supporting, for example, designing um, uh, body forms for sledge hockey. Uh, so there's a wide variety of things that we do uh, designed to make sure that when somebody comes to us, we can look at how do we solve this. And then how do we bring our students in to give them that practical experience that's operating at such a high level that by the time they leave, between the education and training that they've received, the work integrated learning experience could be co-op, and finally this capstone that when they graduate, and in some cases they, they transfer to Royal Roads or the University of Victoria, or they go out directly to work, 
we're going to make sure that we have one of the best educated workforces uh, in the province here, and if not Canada. And again, it's how do we align that to make sure that we offer those opportunities with, with employers, uh, and how do we make sure that we, we get the resources in place, and how do we let employers know that this is what we're doing to make sure that we can support them. So again, we have a, a variety of practical projects uh, and examples, uh, and one that we're very happy with as, as a community partnership was when we uh, took uh, from Truth and Reconciliation the witness blanket and created a digital version of that. So there can only be one witness blanket. But when we created a digital version that you go into in 3D, we can send that across the country to many different locations to see uh, part of uh, of our journey in reconciliation. Thank you. And, and Kevin, maybe I'm going to give you a, a slightly different spin on this, if I may. Uh, one of the first times I met you, uh, you had mentioned uh, when you were in Australia, one of the things you had done is taken the patent portfolio of the university you're with and had sort of opened it up to to the wider industrial sector to access. And I, I found that just an incredibly interesting approach to, to how we approach innovation and how we do this knowledge transfer and knowledge translation. And I was wondering if you could maybe a comment on, on that a little bit, just because I do sure. think it's such an innovative example and be sort of anything that you're sort of thinking around UVic uh, in this sort of subject area as well. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's also a great question. I think um, Philip addressed a little bit of it. It's communications is a big thing, right? Letting people know what it is you actually do. And part of your question was talking about why, you know, why doesn't research get into end users? Mm-hmm. And I think universities have to be partially to blame. We have these, uh, Silly fights over IP. We think IP rules everything and, and we make it very difficult to work with universities. Uh, I've worked at three Canadian universities. It's a tremendously difficult job if you are a company or somebody with a, with a, with an idea to take a bit of technology and spin it out of a university. And it's so hard, so hard to do. And so I think we've got to really come to grips with how we deal with, with, um, industry and business and, and people that can utilize our IP. And what you, what you had mentioned, Nathan, was, yeah, we had an open, we called it a bookshelf. And so uh, the stuff we knew we could actually make a lot of money on really quickly, of course, was 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 done. And it was uh, the university who, who benefited and the, and the researchers. But we had, you know, a lot of IP. There's a lot of ideas that come out of a university. And there's typically not enough receptors because we just don't expose the IP to people who might have a great idea. And, and quite a bit of what we did was put this IP on a bookshelf. We'd have companies come in who were totally outside of where we had developed the IP for. But they said, you know what? I could actually utilize that in my business, which is quite different than the intended use of the research. And they'd go off and become successful. And so we want to try to encourage that. How do we expose more of what we've got to uh, to people out in the business? I think the other piece is the business itself. In Canada and particularly BC, we don't have mature business development systems. And so, you know, where are our venture capital markets? We've got one of the wealthiest populations in the in the capital region in this country per capita but we don't have a venture capital fund uh where's our early markets what's the role of government for example in saying to a to a new company well we can't get startup money we don't want you to go to the US but you've got this health technology where we're the ministry of health we're the biggest purchaser of health technology uh you know in BC so why don't we have a, a government based acquisition um, policy for utilizing new startup technology, whether it's in health or it's in energy or whatever it is, to give these companies a chance to get going. Because a lot of what we see at UVic is even the technology we're able to license or manage to a local company within a couple of years goes south to the U.S. where the company becomes hugely successful and forgets the roots that we've had here. So I think that's really got to be a big part of our future is, is just having those conversations frequently with local industry and business about what's available, what's the latest and greatest stuff coming out of the university before it's even developed and not worry too much about, uh, well, you know, who's going to own the IP? Because quite frankly, IP that isn't used is just absolute wasted R&D dollars. And there's so much of it in this country that sits mm-hmm. on a shelf and never gets dealt with. And so the other piece we did in, in uh, Newcastle was we were to say, you know, we're not going to charge you on the IP, but we hope you're really successful. And if you are, and your company goes off and makes millions, remember us, come back and give us a donation. And guess what? That happens. It absolutely happens. And so I think we just need to be more flexible with, with the value we put on IP, but also, as, as Philip said, we've got to communicate what's going on behind these walls. And so let's create more porous boundaries between uh, 
universities and, and industry business and the community because a lot of the IP or a lot of the ideas that come out of a university are there to solve social problems as well. Or there may not be that big high tech billion dollar, multi billion dollar unicorn, but boy, you can solve a lot of local problems if you, if you use the ideas that people have at, at, at universities. That's great. Thank you all. Uh, this last question is a bit of, a bit of a roll up wrap up and then I've got one last one after that that I'm going to sneak in and surprise you all with. But, uh, <laughs> what I wanted to, to sort of get a sense from you is, is how do you see higher education sort of genuinely strengthening community and not just contributing to global thought leadership, but, but how are you sort of seeing it play out in practice? And I was wondering if you'd be able to, to comment on that. And maybe Lane, we'll start with you if that's okay on this one. Sure. I'll just start off with, I'm a, uh, I, I grew up in a small town in northern British Columbia, and at 17, I went to a rather large university in Point Grey, had an unsuccessful year, and then started uh, um, the next year an apprenticeship, and then the economy went uh, south, and this ties to the earlier question. I lost that job, and I realized I needed to get the right education and skills to be able to make sure that I was um, future-proofing my employability. And as we take a look at what colleges do, what universities do, we have the big pieces. But to your question on, on what we do on the specific, we're providing opportunities for people for a better life. And we do that through education. Uh, we do that through how that education improves the community and providing services and supports that are needed for example, the nurses that we need, the doctors that we need, the engineers that we need, the engineering, engineering technologists and technicians that we need, the apprentices that we need to make sure that we have a better future. And it might be a bit trite to say it, but if we didn't have electricians or plumbers, um, we're not going to have a very good uh, place to live because our residences aren't going to be that great. So, Again, all of these things contribute to making sure we have the type of community that we want, the type of infrastructure that we need, uh, and we all play a role in that. And again, for colleges, it's that first link in, in many cases, to post-secondary education. And if you're doing apprenticeship, getting your interprovincial red seal. If you're doing a one-year, two-year certificate, gaining the skills to get into employment, and then in many cases coming back and upskilling and reskilling to continue that. And again, that link that we have together and the West Shore initiative that Philip mentioned are ways that we will support our community very directly with new opportunities as we work together. And yes, there's a little bit of, of competition between us, but not really because we are very different and I like to think complementary in what we do. And if I have an issue or a concern or need to get some advice, I can send or call uh, Philip or Kevin, and they're really good at getting back to me, and vice versa. So we work together to support our community, to support Island Health, to support all the agencies that, that are in our community, support government, to make sure that our community gets what, it's, gets what it needs, but also to focus on looking forward and planning forward uh, to make sure that we still have vibrant communities. Great. Thanks, Lane. And Philip, sort of same question. Beyond the, the global thought leadership and research and innovation, which are all critical, how, how do you see the university sector and the post-secondary sector more generally sort of strengthening community? And maybe if you can, because you kind of mentioned it in snippets throughout, if you can talk sort of about that, that new partnership and how that came together, too, because I think that's incredibly innovative. And I know when I talk to colleagues about it in other parts of the country, they they can't believe that we have that level of collaboration here. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Lane nailed it. I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're providing people with the skills to thrive and survive in a rapidly changing world with all of its challenges. And those people are going back into community, performing critical functions and taking leadership roles in challenging the kind of problems that, and the wicked problems that, that are in front of us. Um, and of course, you know, we've spoken about uh, innovation and research, which has local application, working with local governments and community organizations and businesses to solve local problems that strengthens community. We are big employers, too. We are anchor institutions, our procurement policies, our, the assets we have. How do those work with community? I know this is something both my colleagues are, are passionate about. 
as well, working with indigenous communities in particular to think about how we might provide opportunities to, uh, to them. The, the new West Shore campus really, I think, is, if not unique, it's distinctive in, in Canada in that you have these three institutions plus the Justice Institute of BC and actually School District 62 coming together to offer programming in one facility, putting aside institutional egos. I'm not saying this has been easy, but mostly putting aside institutional, our institutional egos, um, to focus on what the communities need, what the students and families and communities on the West Shore need. And if you are a student walking into that facility, you should be able to have your choice of programming. It shouldn't matter which institution it's from. We've got a lot of detail to work out around this right now so that we do have this kind of seamless or this this uh, unified integrated portal at the front. Uh, and we work out all the intricacies of of how this is going to work in, in in the back office. But I do think if we pull this off, and we will, that uh, this will be a really good example uh, of of a collaborative approach. You know, just think about it. A student could come in and take a course from Camosun, from UVic, from the Justice Institute, uh, from Aurora Roads, and there'd be all kinds of pathways available to them, which would be incredible. Um, and I just, uh, I think it's hugely exciting. It's a lot of work. Our systems are not set up to support it within our institutions necessarily, but also the kind of government funding approaches are not necessarily set up to support it yet. But people are sitting up and taking notice. And I think over time, um, you know, just by driving this particular uh, initiative, uh, we will be able to change processes within our institutions and within government as well to support a truly, a truly collaborative approach. And again, it speaks to the, the strength of the ecosystem we have here. Um, and the fact that we are very different kinds of institutions has probably made it possible. But I, I honestly think it's the future of post-secondary education in this country. That's great. And, and Kevin, anything do you want to add to this at all? Yeah, I won't repeat what everybody else has said, but I, but I come back to what I said when I first started off when you asked the first question, how are universities changing? And I, and I think that we're changing. Um, in that we want to be institutions for and of the region that we're in. And so yeah. we can all aspire to be globally engaged, and we should be. But as Philip said, we need to tackle local issues and be, glo- and be locally relevant. And I think, uh, you know, we're all working towards that, and the West Shore is a great example. The other piece for me is, um, you know, what's our role in outreach? Participation rates in certain parts of the island and certain populations are much lower than they are across this country. So what's our role as, as higher education institutions in getting out into the K-12 system to uh, to interact with students very early on about the importance of higher education and what higher education is? Because quite frankly, by the time they're in uh, grade 10 or 11, if, if, if we haven't captured their interest in higher education, it's not going to happen. What's our role in creating pathway programs for mature students to get back into our system? Let's say you went to high school and you hated high school. You hated your teachers. Um, you weren't engaged. You went off and worked. Well, how do we get you back in to give you an opportunity for higher education? Because let's face it, Canada hasn't changed in 30 years of census. 51% of Canadians have higher education, 32% at university, 29 at colleges. That has not changed why hasn't that changed? What about the other 50% of the people that don't get the opportunity to go to university? They're all smart people out there. So what's our role in, in sort of catalyzing that community and educating the community? And I guess the last piece for me is, you know, we're a city of 26,000 students uh, at the UVic uh, this year. Why, you know, why don't our students also interact more with the community in the city? So what can we do to encourage students to volunteer in local organizations as part of their uh, credits for for university? How can we get students more engaged in their community that they're going to stay um, later on? You know, we've got 60%, 60% of our students from outside uh, the, the lower island. So, um, you know, how can we encourage students to get more engaged as well? Because there's a huge potential, if you call it up, you like workforce to work with volunteer organizations to really change the shape of, of the region that we're in. And so I think it's our, our role as leaders at these institutions to try to create these mechanisms to get our students engaged. Thank you. 
So uh, I think we're we're coming close to time, but uh, I wanted to thank you all, obviously, for your time and for for brilliant insights all across the board. I think we've heard, obviously, that there's a ton of capability. There's a ton of, of economic contributions. There's a huge amount of research and innovation that come out of our post-secondary sector. Uh, the last question I kind of wanted to leave you with is an incredibly practical one. Often, I think, you know, in my in my government life, we would hear from very small companies or stakeholder groups or even indigenous communities. How, how do we best interact with universities, not just on a singular researcher type partnership, but how do we sort of engage and muster that full capability of the universities? And I was just wondering if you have any advice for for a group that's looking to connect and partner. How do they best go do that? Because oftentimes it. Uh, as you sort of mentioned, Kevin, it's a large city at times, and it can be a little bit uh, intimidating and tough to navigate. So I was just wondering if you had any comments for our audience about how to how they can best engage with with your institutions. And maybe we'll start with you, Kevin. Yeah, thanks. And and universities are indeed these huge mazes to somebody from outside the system. It is a confusing place to be. So first of all, we've got to up our game and make a, a front door, if you like, to an institution, both on a, on a virtual basis, on a website, and also a physical front door. And, and so I think that's something we're absolutely working on at, at UVic. We're trying to actually implant some of the pieces of the university throughout the city. So we've created an innovation network um, that now consists of four innovation hubs uh, across the region. And those innovation hubs are for not for our students and faculty and staff. They can use them. They're actually for the community. We encourage the community to come into these hubs to learn about the university, to learn about uh, innovation, to learn about uh, lean startup methodology, if you like. If you want to start a business, here's kind of some of the skills that might help you. If you want to connect to the business school for some coaching, here's some of the, the hubs. And so we're trying to create sort of a two-way of doing it. We want to not have people to have to come to the university. We have this ring road around campus. I'm sure you know. Some people call it the moat. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. So we're trying to fill in the moat. We're trying to make our campus more accessible. But I do think we've got to be out there as well. So we've got to interact with the public. And I think once we start doing that, and again, West Shore is a great example of that, I think it'll be easier for people to find their way around the university. And we need to demystify the fact that we're not, uh, you know, this magical thing um, on this crazy campus that, that doesn't like to talk to people. We just need to find our own language to converse with people in the community. Thanks. And thanks again, Kevin, for your time. And Lane, question for you. How, how would that work in the Camosun context? Well, I think we always want to hear from the community. Uh, and I agree with what Kevin says. We, we could do it better. It would be great. I'd like to be able to say we have a one-stop location to come into the college. But uh, this is one of the things that we're working to improve as well. So right now we have a number of ways into the college. Uh, and I would say that if it's in the innovation um, round, Camosun innovates. If you're not sure, um, then contact my office and we can help you negotiate uh, the um, academic world, if you will, uh, to get you to the right spot. And hopefully we can work with you and do something with you. And if not, then perhaps it might be more uh, apropos if it was a Royal Roads or UVic. And, and again, uh, this is not a, an issue of territoriality. It's what's in the best interest of the community. And Phillips, the, the Royal Roads perspective? Yeah, well, Kevin mentioned having a ring road and a motor around, and I'm actually behind a wall and in a castle. <laughs> so this is even more challenging, right? Um, I would say our West Shore campus is an example of us going into community. We, we call it venturing out. We've got a goal in our, our new strategic plan called inviting venture out, which speaks exactly to your point. And this is a, a case of us, three of us coming together right downtown. This is right downtown Langford. Um, and, you know, we will build a facility where I hope people will feel comfortable and welcome walking in with whatever interest or question they have. So, so that's, that's an example of something we can purpose build. We've all inherited our current structures and our current locations. Um, and like, uh, like my colleagues, I mean, we, we do attempt to provide a kind of portal in, but it is tough to navigate. I had a great story from an alum the other day. We had an alumni event in Toronto. She told me, I was on your campus a few months ago and I was looking around because I wanted to give a donation and I couldn't find anybody to give a donation to. So I was like, oh, that is a problem, right? If you're wandering around with a check, nobody will take it. Um, so to Lane's point, 
people want to contact us and can't find find a way in, uh, call the president's office. We have a, on our website, we have a contact form. You can put your request in there and send it in and we'll try and direct you as best we can. But as Kevin and Lena both said, we, we've got more work to do on this front for sure. Well, again, thank you all and very, very appreciated for you taking time out of your day and going through these questions. And uh, again, I'd like to thank you and hand it over back to uh, to SIP to, to close this session. Thanks again. Thank you, Nathan, and all the presidents for your time today and your community leadership. Thank you, Rob and Chek, for sponsoring this important conversation. And thank you to presenting sponsor RBC and our Catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rising Economy 2022. We encourage you to head back to the Hoover platform to continue the conversation. Up next at 11.30 a.m. is the Pacific Swell, the rise of BC's blue economy. Thank you for joining us for this great session, part of Rising Economy Week 2022.